So Money episode 489. Happy Halloween. Our guest today is Bushra Azhar, persuasion strategist. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Just about every investment and retirement plan is created by men for men, which is fine unless you're a woman. Women still earn less than men. For now, we're more aware of risk. We're more likely than men to pause our careers to raise a family. And unfortunately, we typically retire with less wealth than men, even though statistics show that we live longer. That's why there's Elevest, created for women, run by and designed by women. Elevest helps women invest based on their specific goals, like buying a home, starting a business, raising a family, or just retiring like a boss. So Money listeners can visit elevest.com slash so money and have an investment plan created at no cost, customized to your specific goals. Invest like a woman with Elevest. E-L-L-E-V-E-S-T. That's elevest.com slash so money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. Trick or treat, or how about a raise? (laughs) Want to learn how to get pretty much anything you want in your So Money life? Negotiating is one of the tenets of being so money. So to that end, I've invited one of the world's top persuasion strategists, Bushra Azhar. She's going to give us her secrets to how she was able to persuade even the most stubborn people in her life and companies. Bushra consults with top companies from Pepsi to Unilever, Ernst & Young, as well as small firms to help executives persuade their bosses to get what they want and to get companies to persuade their customers. And she says it all comes down to psychology. So we're going to get a psych 400 level crash course today on how to negotiate effectively. Some fun factoids about Bushra. She's hilarious. One, she was also the youngest vice president of a bank at just 24 years old and was the only woman at the table. She began working in consulting when she moved to Saudi Arabia, where they have very strict laws pertaining to women. For example, she can't drive, open a bank account, or leave the country without the permission of a guardian. Yeah, but yet she managed to build her business while working part-time there and managing a family. So how exactly? You'll have to listen to find out. Here's Bushra Azhar. Bushra Azhar, welcome to So Money, all the way from Pakistan. This is a very unique episode. I've never had somebody from Pakistan on the show. Welcome to So Money. Oh my God, thank you so much. And I'm really thrilled that I'm the first one. Now I'm going to just go ahead and embarrass my entire nation. But (laughs) (laughs) but I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. And specifically, you're in your little brother's bedroom, like he's a teenager or something? Yeah, he is. He's he's slightly older than a teenager, but he still acts like one. So I think it still counts as a teenager. Yeah, I'm kind of in a very weird position. I'm so glad it's not on video. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we appreciate the sacrifice because we know you're doing this to make sure the audio is good. 
And um, welcome to the show. All right. So I'm obsessed with your website. I'm obsessed with what you do. You're a persuasion expert. Um, you're also, as you say, a tolerable wife, an eccentric mom, a spicy food connoisseur, a dreadful tennis player, just like me. And <laughs> last but not least, a, a social psychology aficionado. Explain that last part to me. How did that become your moniker? <laughs> okay, so that's really interesting. A little bit of backstory. So um, I'm from Pakistan, as you said. I do live in Saudi Arabia. But um, um, when, when, when you are born in a country like Pakistan, even though my parents were kind of rebels, but if you're not a pretty little boy, um, you know, life is not that pleasant. So since I was not a pretty little boy, I had to kind of find a way to get a yes from, you know, at multiple occasions. So I was into persuasion and negotiation from a very early age, kind of trying to compensate for not being a boy. Uh, <laughs> and um, so I I read about 300, now at last count, it was 308 books on psychology wow. of persuasion. So I've read everything from medical journals to, um, you know, stuff that is about basically how to socially engineer a situation and rip people off. I've read it all. Um, <laughs> so I'm obsessed with this. Whole idea. I, haven't, I haven't used any of those, but there's this great book called Social Engineering that basically teaches you how to how to basically steal money from people by by engineering a social situation. So I'm kind of obsessed with that. And that's why I, I don't do not have a psychology degree. I don't think I'd pass one considering the kind of things that I use. But but this is the thing that I do. I love everything that has to do with psychology and the, the way we take irrational decisions. And this is kind of a newer business for you, right? This isn't something that even though you have been good at this since you came out of the womb, um, you didn't really <laughs> formalize this into a profession until recently. So what was that transition? What were you doing before? And then how did you make the transition over to now being a very successful, sought after persuasion strategist? I mean, you work with Pepsi, Unilever, Ernst & Young individuals, but it wasn't always this way. Um, yeah, so I'm, um, I'm a, I'm originally, I'm an accountant. So I'm an accountant. I, I like to say this and it makes me sound like a really shady, um, character, but I basically, I'm an accountant turned banker, turned academic, turned consultant, turned entrepreneur. So, so the last thing that I was doing before I started this was I was, um, I had a small business advisory firm. I was running a firm in Saudi Arabia, which is interesting because I'm an expert in Saudi and I'm a female expert. So, it's kind of a, you know, a difficult situation to be in. But I was consulting with um, some of the top Saudi companies. I was doing consulting. And again, you know, when you have been working in consulting for a long time, you unconsciously use a lot of these persuasion, persuasion tactics, you know, to close pitches, to negotiate, to, you know, kind of just get the get the contract. So I've been doing this for a long time. And then in July of 2014, I decided to start my online business, uh, my own online business. I'd never run a business. I never wanted to run a business. Um, I was very happy with people paying me a lot of money to basically just, you know, consult. <laughs> so, so I started my online business in July 2014. And in two years, it has, it's probably made me more money than I've made then my husband and I have made combined wow. in the last 30, wow. 37 years. Yeah. So going back to Saudi Arabia, that, as we know, is a country with very strict laws when it comes to women. And yet you, there you were able to build a business. And not only that, but, you know, before you had the business, you were um, a, a prominent female uh, consultant and you were in a very male dominant industry. So how did that work or not work? How did you navigate that? 
so so it actually it worked pretty so so i had two issues the, the first issue obviously is that i'm a female and i'm an expat but the second issue is that i am from pakistan which is most of the low caliber jobs as saudis would look at or or the economy would look at is with pakistanis so you know the drivers and the um, you know the plumbers and the construction workers so there was also that element that i came from a country where there are, so i remember my first job interview the first question that the lady asked me she was the ceo and she was like oh i didn't know people in women in pakistan were so educated hmm. so, yeah. so i was kind of feeling with that that was very interesting yeah. um, and i responded which was interesting and i responded and i didn't know that women in saudi could actually step out of the house without their guardian <laughs> she didn't like that yeah but, also did i guess you didn't get that job uh actually i did oh, that was okay i was coming to i was coming to that point so i think the reason that i've i've managed to you know do so well and i was making six figures in consulting in a country that doesn't even have dollars as the official currency so mm-hmm. um i was making a lot of money and i think the reason it was was a because i took my reputation building in my own hands so i established myself as a subject matter expert in the area that i was consulting on um i was blogging i was writing for forbes i was being featured in fast company so i had my own um online presence under control so every time i would apply and the people would google me they would be like oh my god she's a big big shot which I don't know whether I was I was I was or not but that kind of gave me that position of I I came from a position of authority where I could negotiate timings I worked flexible timings throughout in Saudi there is no concept of women dictating their own terms you know when it comes to a position but I was working in I, I had flexible timings because I had small children and I wanted to spend time with them and again all of that came from the fact that I was known as a regional subject matter expert so they had to overlook a lot of things for example the fact that I don't cover my head um so in Saudi you know culturally especially when you're dealing with corporations you typically 95% 97% of the people would cover their head women i don't because i i normally don't cover my head so they had they they accepted a lot of that unusual behavior because i had taken the time to make myself kind of indispensable for them right right which which not a coincidence is a psychological tactic It is. This is very is meta. This whole conversation is like all going back to <laughs> psychology. So let's get to some of your tactics. I, I, I'm desperate to find out what your best tips are specifically for, and, and keeping in mind our audience, you know, many of us are interested in making more money. How do you close the deal or ask for more money? Or when it comes to specifically dollars and cents, and you are on the asking end of that, how do you negotiate so, so obviously you know there are there are tons of tactics but one of the things that i've i've found work really well is so i have this framework that i call the mass persuasion method and the idea behind mass persuasion method is that you look at human brain as a as a kind of an electric circuit and if you really want to spark interest um in that circuit you need to activate certain human certain psychological switches but when it comes to negotiation one of the switches that i found to be most effective is what i like to call the parity switch where you need to accept that whatever you're doing whether you're selling something online or offline or you're running a business or you're negotiating a raise there is always you're always competing against something and even if you're not competing against an entity you're competing against a no 
right? They can they can choose to say no. So this this idea that you're constantly competing against something and to position your argument in that context um, that. So, for example, I like to say that a lot. For example, if someone comes to you, you you make them an offer, you make them a you give them a quote, and they come back to you and say, "Oh, it's too expensive." Instead of kind of going on the defensive and saying, um, "No, no, no, it's not expensive." Um, I have this. I teach this tactic to my students, which is, you know, just ask them question, ask them this question: expensive compared to what? You know, this just this question reframes right. the entire argument because uh, half of the time they're not they don't even have any idea what they're comparing it to. But when you ask them this question um, now, they need to justify why they need you. They need to justify why they should pay you. You're not going to do the justification because now and when they say, oh, compared to this person or compared to this entity, you need to be ready as to why that comparison is an unfair comparison and why, you know, what is your point of differentiation to that mm-hmm. entity? Works for negotiations, works for selling high ticket items. If you're a coach, works for basically works for every single thing. When when you kind of make that ask that question, expensive compared to what or high priced compared to what? Right. That's a really, really good tip. All right. Let's say you're in an office setting and you want to ask your boss for more money. Um, you've done all your research. You've been adding value. You've talked about all that. I'm like, you've done everything right. Now it's a matter of you know, taking a big breath and waiting to hear what the other person has to say. And if you sense some resistance, do you have any way to still win? I would not say a word. So I think silence in this case is so. So I've had this, these situations for me. It was lucky, very lucky for me. I've never had an issue with negotiating when it, negotiating when it comes to price. Um People normally pay what I ask for, but I've had situations where I had to negotiate for flexible timings, for example, because, you know, I was breastfeeding both my kids. I couldn't work in a nine to six setting. So if I'm in that situation, I would kind of just make my argument in a non-negotiable way. You need to know what your non-negotiables are um, and you need to know where you would be able to let go a little bit. So once you have that clarity, um, I and I've done that multiple times in Saudi Arabia, in Pakistan, in a business business setting where I would just lay it out. This is my offer. And then I would not go on and try to add more to it. Once you have laid out your argument and you've taken the deep breath, you have laid out the argument, you've, you've specified what your non-negotiables are. Um, I would wait for the, for the other person to, to kind of counter that. Because I think a lot of people, when we're doing, when we're negotiating, we act too quickly to, to counter. And half of the times we end up looking weak because it seems as we're not standing our ground. So again, a kind of manipulative psychological yeah. tactic, but kind of let them come back and say, because when you're silent and you've, you've mentioned your non-negotiable, you've laid it out, the other person cannot say no. They will probably come back, come back with some argument and then you need to kind of be ready to counter that argument. But do not speak once you've laid out your, um, your non-negotiables. Yeah, I've heard that too, that... Even if you're just asking for a discount at the mall, you know, yeah, like silence is everything. Um, yeah, the, 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 there was this time when uh, when we couldn't afford to travel business class, but I'd always wanted to travel business class. So I was the kind of go to person to go ask for an upgrade um, and I would get it like 80 percent of the time I would <laughs> I would be upgraded. What? Um, it was it's funny, but but because I would just say and I would say, you know what? Um 
I'm with two children and um, I can see that there are spots out there and they're really well-behaved children. Uh, so I would kind of make a, a say and I would just wait for the other person to say no. And um, sometimes they would obviously, sometimes they would come back and say, oh, no, no, it's not our policy or whatever. But 80% of the time um, they look at my and I make sure to wash my kid's face before I make that <laughs> argument <laughs> because that goes a long way in proving that they're well-mannered. Um, and, and again, silence, just, just lay it out, just lay your request out. It's a reasonable request. Um, you don't look like a drug dealer. So my husband, if he's, if he's freshly shaved, he does not look like a drug dealer. So, so and it would know, be for free. It would be a free upgrade to first class to business class. Free upgrade to a business what? class. What yes. airline is this? So we can all practice this in our future. <laughs> oh, I travel. I travel extensively. So every every airline, okay. probably every airline. I think, but I remember the last one I got was with Singapore Airlines. Um, we got an upgrade. Um, all four of us, which was wow. interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, putting a how old are your kids? Um, uh, eight, okay, I keep forgetting. They grow so fast. So it's eight and 10. <laughs> eight and 10. I have a two-year-old. I think it's unfair for me to bring him into first class. Like I think I, I think like out of respect for all the other travelers who've paid a lot of money for their tickets. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, oh so there's a, there's a nasty psychological tactic that I've used on my kids ever since we started okay, traveling. Okay, tell me everything. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so the first time I traveled with both my kids, one was uh, a year old, the other one was three years. Um, and we went to, we basically we moved from Pakistan to Saudi and I was going alone. Uh, it was a, it was obviously four or five hours flight. So the moment we sat in, I said, you know what, um, there's just one rule, do whatever you want, but you cannot leave the seat. And to date, my kids do not leave the seat. And as long as they're in the seat, um, either they're bored or they're, you know, they're occupied, whatever, but you, it, it, the, 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 the chances of them falling asleep is, is quite high. But if you let them get, so, so not a lot of rules. I don't tell them don't make noise. I don't tell them don't shout. I don't tell them. I just tell them you cannot hmm get off from the seat and that alone because I see a lot of kids oh my last trip oh my god I, I paid for a business class ticket and there were two twins who were running throughout um uh throughout the flight it was a nine hour flight and I think if and the mom was losing her shit I was really I felt really bad for her um but honestly if they're in the seat the that's that's probably you've won kind of half of the battle right um so, okay, yeah. that's a really good tip. I'm going to use that when he's a little bit older. And uh, I still don't know about paying the extra money for his seat because it's like he's a little person. You know, it's enough for me. I have a hard enough time justifying it for myself. Need a website? Why not do it yourself with Wix.com? No matter what business you're in, Wix.com has something for you. Used by more than 84 million people worldwide, Wix.com makes it easy to get your website live today. You need to get the word out about your business. It all starts with a stunning website with hundreds of designer-made customizable templates to choose from. The drag and drop editor. There's no coding needed. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. You can do it yourself with Wix.com. Wix.com empowers business owners to create their own professional websites every day. When you're running your own business, you're bound to be busy too busy, too busy worrying about your budget, too busy scheduling appointments, too busy to build a website for your business. And because you're too busy, it has to be easy. And that's where Wix.com comes in. With Wix.com, it's easy and free. Go to Wix.com to create your website today. The result is stunning. So this show is about money, which I'm sure is a, uh, 
hot topic in your world. Tell me a little bit about your financial philosophy, philosophy, Bushra. Do you have a money mantra? Um, oh, oh yeah, I do. So, um, so one of the biggest ones that I have is this whole idea of the more you give, the more you get. Um, and I've always made more money than my peers. Um, even my husband. Um, and the biggest reason that I see it happening is because I've always given 10%, 15% of whatever I earned. I, I, I look at it as kind of the rent that I pay for being alive and well or, and for basically winning the genetic lottery. You know, we have won the genetic lottery. <laughs> let's, let's be fair. So, so even though people look at this and they think it's all because I'm a nice person, which is highly questionable if you talk to my kids. <laughs> but the reality mm-hmm. is that I also know for a fact that I, have always made more money. And the reason it is so is because I've always given more. Um, and I would kind of get a raise when no one else would get a raise. I would get jobs that paid as much as twice the market rate. And um, so the, the, there was also this element of my ninja persuasion skills, but but really this whole idea that I always give and I, I, I get, I make 10 times what I give always. So that this is kind of my secret that's a great tip. Tony Robbins once told me on the show that when you give, it, it it's like it teaches your brain that there's always more money to yeah. give. Um, because Absolutely. and it's it's a really great habit to get into. And do so. Do you just do it automatically, or do you have at the end you reconcile like once a year, or, or is it ongoing? Yeah. Yeah. So it's ongoing. I, I, again, you know, I've never made this kind of money ever. Um, so now I have a lot of funds. So so now I have about. $100,000 to give, which is wow. so, so 10% of my revenues. So now I want to streamline it and I'm looking at potentially putting together kind of starting my own non nonprofit because I honestly, this is a lot of money to just give um, to about anyone because it, again, it's 10% of my revenue, which is a lot of money. Right. So before I used to just, you know, I have uh, the NGOs that I've personally worked with. Um, I basically work in three countries, Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh. I work with street children. Um, so I had, I have a list of five to seven NGOs that I used to give to when it wasn't a lot of money. But now I'm looking at potentially starting my own uh, nonprofit. So you have more because, control over the dollars. Yeah. Spent. Right. That's yeah. smart. Um, yeah. How did you learn this? Was the, So the next question is about childhood and our money memories that really influenced us then and now as adults, what would you say was a very impactful experience you had with money as a kid that maybe is why you are someone who is not only extremely driven and persuasive, but obviously very charitable too. So, so we've always had enough now. Um, I grew up in a house where, you know, we would go on vacations, we would get all the nice things, we would go to private schools, all with one army salary. So my my mom, my both my parents were in army, but my mom quit when she went when we were born. So it was just my dad, one salary. But I remember um, us always having the nice things. And I remember when we would kind of play outside in the in the army compound and mom would give us the, the nice expensive snacks. The neighbors would actually tell us, mom, not to let us play outside with the snacks because 
because then their kids wanted the nice things too and and they couldn't afford that so i had this idea that i was really rich but in reality we were all the same pay scales it's an army regulated pay scale so it wasn't like we were making more money it was just the way my parents chose to spend their money so we, we they spent money on things that made life easier we we didn't buy any property my mom didn't have any jewelry we would didn't buy fancy clothes or fancy cars but our lives were super comfy so i think because of this we have so much money all the time i never really understood also why people would borrow or take on loans you know my always my dad always lent money to people but he never took one so when i was growing up i kind of had the same thing so i think this this whole idea of you always have enough and you are rich this really has inspired me i've i've never had this mindset that oh i don't have enough money or i need to borrow and i've never taken on a penny in loans um i've never borrowed any money i i kind of pay off my credit cards probably like three weeks in advance, which it doesn't make sense. Why do you even have credit card? Um, so I think that, that this is what it boils down to. You you look at your life and you think, you know what? I have a lot of money. There's this, this mindset. How does it work overseas in the countries that you've lived in, in terms of buying big ticket items like homes and cars? Do people just pay cash or are you, do you have a mortgage? Everyone we know, um, Every single person we know has some sort of a loan, uh, except us, me and my husband. Um, and and we've it's probably probably because we have we've always had two salaries. Um, um, I and, and I invested in my first house, first real estate investment, six months after I got married. And it was really funny because um, you don't buy property at that age. You know, my parents never bought property at that age. My in-laws never bought property at that age. But I was like, you know what, since I have the money and we have two salaries, why can't we just spend one salary for the house kind of expenses and the other one to actually invest? Um, it was interesting because we went to the property office and my in-laws went with me and my parents went with me. I was this whole huge family gathering <laughs> because they were so proud. Um, but but typically, yeah, people do. Uh, people would take on either loans or mortgage or but but we have been lucky that we've never had to. We've never had to do that. Wow, that's really exceptional. All right. Let's <laughs> talk about failure. Ah. Uh, uh. Yeah. Oh, my husband still hasn't forgiven me for that one. Oh, okay. Um, and and when that happened, uh, the, the 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 office that I used to work with, the, the people that I used to work with, I haven't seen them in eight years because I don't think I can go and show my face to them because I'm embarrassed. They'll ask me about the money that I lost. <laughs> so this happened when the stock market crashed in 2008. Mm. So I was the CFO for a banking company. I was a vice president for a banking company and I was partly managing their portfolio, their stock market portfolio. Um, and because I was doing this and I was, it, it was very thrilling to kind of play with stocks, to buy and sell and to invest. So I kind of got addicted to the to the stock market and I decided to invest 1 million rupees, which is about $10,000 uh, in the market. It was all fun and play for a of bit. Of your own money uh, or of the company's money? No, so I was managing their portfolio anyway, but then I went ahead because it was so much fun. I sort thought, you know what? Let me just start my own portfolio. Okay. So I invested, um, I mean, one million rupees, which in in Pakistan is a massive amount of money. It's ten thousand dollars, but it's a lot of money in Pakistan. Um, and I decided to invest it. I bought some stocks which were visibly overpriced. I could see they were overpriced, but I just went ahead and bought them, and boom, the market crashed. And I tried pulling out, but it was too late. So it's been now eight years 
And some of the stocks that I bought then at the peak price, it is still cheaper now. It still hasn't caught up to that price. Wow. <laughs> it was fun then, but I decided that I'm kind of an impulsive buyer when it is it is fun. Um, so nowadays, my husband does a little bit of trading, but I have kind of spawned off <laughs> stock market yeah, for you've, good. <laughs> that's fair to, to, to say. Like, I'm a little overzealous when it comes to investing. So someone else should maybe manage it for us. <laughs> Um, that's an, so, um, so that was your biggest money. You say your biggest money mistake to date. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know what? Uh, if it's any consolation, a lot of us failed in 2008. <laughs> a lot of us <laughs> lost a lot of money and houses and jobs in 2008. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, if you live yeah. to tell the story and laugh about it, I would say it was a good failure. <laughs> All right. Super success. Let's talk about your so money moment. So yeah, my first real estate, real estate investment, um, six months after I got married, um, I was only 25. Um, and I just saw this place where you could actually buy a house on installments. So I convinced my husband that we should, <clears throat> you know, we should do that. And like I said, we went to the, we went to do the paperwork at the property office and my parents went and my in-laws went. It was so funny, um, because they were surprised and proud, but, they were also a bit uneasy at the idea of two newlyweds, 25-year-old and 28-year-old actually buying a house. Um, and people at the property office, they actually thought that our parents were gifting us the house because that's very usual. That's something that parents do in Pakistan um, because it's just not the kind of thing young people do, you know, in Pakistan or probably anywhere in the world. Um, people probably start thinking about saving an investment and buying a house after they have kids grown up, um, you know, sometimes even after so my parents, for example, did not own a house uh, till the time I was almost 20. So that was a very, so I was really proud of myself. Uh, we eventually, so we were going to switch properties. So we eventually sold that house, bought something else. Um, we do a lot of investment in real estate, but that was awesome because we didn't have any money, but we really wanted to start investing. Why do you think, what was the, what was the urge? Where, where was it coming from? Um, this whole idea that I'm a probably okay. I think I think probably because I saw my parents, um, and not it's not that they were desperate. It's not that, they, but they lived in a rented house all their lives. We were in the army, so we were moving around a lot. But even after my dad um, kind of took on early retirement, we were we still lived in a rented house. So I had this idea. I had I really wanted to kind of start probably planting, um, planting my foot, get my, get, it was a really tiny house. I would, I probably would have never lived in that house. It was really tiny, but just this idea that it's something to call my own, you know, it's my, at least my, my house. Um, now it's not there anymore. We've probably, we've probably flipped it 10 times since then. But, um, but I think that was where the urge came from. And you still live in the house? No, no, no. We've, we've, we've flipped it. It was, it was more of an investment decision. So we, we thought we probably, it was a really tiny house. So we eventually ended up flipping it for property and then flipping it again and then flipping it. <laughs> so it was kind of a forced saving. Yeah. Yeah. Forced saving slash house investment. Okay. What's your number one money habit? Something that you do to help you manage your money or at least just be able to make smart decisions with your, fi with your finances. Uh, okay. So this, this, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an accountant. I'm married to an accountant. So, you know, our kind of, our pillow talk is really interesting, but, but, um, I don't really have a money management ritual, but I have a more, a behavioral ritual. So 
I, I love I love making money. I'm not a big spender, but I love making money. I love the thrill of the sale. So every sale that I get, I have this weird habit, which is also kind of time consuming. But I basically go through every single sale that comes in. I open the notification. I look at the name of the person who bought from me and I kind of say a silent thank you to that person. You know, it's a weird habit, but I'm obsessed with knowing who actually trusted me enough mm. to buy my stuff without ever meeting me, without knowing me, without seeing me. And I make hundreds of sales every launch. So it is time consuming, but it just, I, I just, I, I have to do this. I'm obsessed with looking at every single name and kind of saying a small thank you. Um, uh, this is just a really weird ritual, but that's all I do. <laughs> I don't think it's weird. I think it's important. I think it's it's great. I think it's being really conscious with your with your riches. You know? <laughs> um Yeah, yeah. All right, Bushra, what's next for you? What are some goals that you want to still accomplish? So, um two immediate things that are top of mind. Uh, I can only plan for the next 3 to 6 months, but um, two things. Um, I'm 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 working on uh, my own podcast, which is all okay. about cracking. Yeah, which is all about cracking the code of online persuasion and doing it in a way that is that'll be that'll endlessly embarrass my family and friends and <laughs> probably leave my children probably leave my children with lifelong emotional trauma. But that's the plan. Uh, I'm also working on a project called Five Dollar Change, and this is I, the idea is to provide world class business training courses uh, for only five bucks. But the best part is that I'm, I'm planning to do these trainings in 20 plus languages, such as Spanish and Bengali and Urdu and Farsi and Indian regional languages. Um, so great quality business trainings accessible globally without any income or language barriers. Now, I come from a country where people live on less than $2 a day. So I want to really make it accessible. And, and there are a lot of people who want to start a business, get into online business, but they can't because there is the income barrier and then there's the language barrier. So I have a team of volunteers working with me who will be translating these trainings in 20 plus languages, uh, starting with languages spoken in impoverished countries where they don't have access to high quality English trainings. Um, so that's the project that I'm really excited about. Amazing. I love that you're going into these countries where there are not a lot of resources, especially for women. I can see yeah, a lot of women yeah. taking advantage of this. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, I can't get enough of your website. I've been, I've been cyber stalking you while you've been talking. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm able to compartmentalize, but uh, your website's fantastic. Everyone visit, visit the Persuasion Revolution. And Bushra, we love you. Thank you so much, and wishing you all the best. Hope to have you back again and share with us the progress that you're making, uh, helping the world. Thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled. I love talking about myself anyway. So thank you so much <laughs> for having me. Our pleasure. Thanks so much to Bushra. If you'd like to learn more about her, her website is thepersuasionrevolution.com. She's also on Twitter at Bushra Azhar. One word. And if you missed any of this, just hop over to somoneypodcast.com where you can download the transcript, the audio, leave a comment, and also ask me a question. Click on Ask Farnoosh and we'll hope to answer your question on a forthcoming Ask Farnoosh episode on Friday. Happy Halloween, everyone. Stay safe. And I hope your day is so money. So money.